morning, church. I'm Joe Greenwood, and our reading this morning is from Mark 4, 35 through 41. Jesus calms the storm. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care about, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Um, Well, real quick before I pray, uh, I just want to address the two elephants in the room. Yes, our chairs are different. Um, You're not imagining things. And yes, there are drums on stage. You are not imagining that also. Um, and I find that important to address because here, here's what happened in me uh, during worship. My worship was distracted away from Jesus because I was worried what you all would think about the chairs and about the drums. It is silly. It is that silly. But that's the reality of um, when, when we are more afraid of either our circumstances or the people near us, we become distracted away from the person and the work of Jesus. We just sung three songs centered on the gospel. I don't even have to preach this morning because we already heard the gospel. In my mind, I was going back and forth like a pendulum No, Jesus, I want to worship you, but I'm still worried about what people are thinking about the chairs and about the drums. And I even had the temptation to come on up here and explain why the chairs look the way they are about the drums and defend all that, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to encourage you to remember what the Lord constantly has to remind me, that we are not in control. And sudden discomforts remind us that we are not in control. And these sudden discomforts and being reminded that we are not in control gives us the opportunity to repent of having easily distracted worship. I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings. I'm not just talking about chairs and drums. But are we really willing to let a few movements of some objects distract us away from where our affections belong. Because really, the chairs and what's on stage doesn't matter. If we have undistracted worship, we can worship through all circumstances. And so we should look inward. We should look at ourselves. I must look at myself and wonder these same things to make sure, is my worship distracted And turns out it is. And so this is going to be my prayer, my pastoral prayer this morning to encourage us to have undistracted worship 
especially this week, as we walk the distance that Jesus walked to the cross, as we follow him there and remember what has deserved our worship. Would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, you have given us good things. You've given us an ultimately good thing in your son, Jesus. And God, I repent, I confess before you now that my worship of you and of your son is easily distracted. Would you heal my broken heart, God? Would you lead the rest of us in this room, this church, to repent, to confess of our easily distracted worship, that we're more afraid of our circumstances, we're more afraid of the people around us than we are of you. We trust other people and places to give us what we need than we trust you to give us what we need. And so, God, we confess. We confess that we are sinners in need of your grace, that you have won us back by the blood of your Son, and you no longer call us sinners, but you call us saints and children, chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Would you let us believe this truth? Would you let it transform us so that we're not worried about what's around us, so that we are undistracted in our loyalty, in our worship to you, God? Would you forgive us and would you increase our faith as we cry out, I believe, help my unbelief? And God, would you let us submit to your word this morning in Mark 4? that we would see that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. That we don't just need help from him to overcome spiritual battles, to overcome earthly troubles, but we need something from your son that we cannot get on our own. We need him to save us. And so would you soften our hearts to your word? God, would you use me by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak truth and only truth? Let us worship you by submitting to what you give us in your Son through your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in his name. And the church says, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm gonna start by referencing a prayer from Ephesians 1 from the the letter from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. Now, the thing about this prayer is that Paul writes it, but the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself pray this prayer. We know this because we're told throughout Scripture that Scripture is given to us from God. These are God's words. And we're told also in Scripture that Jesus and the Holy Spirit pray for us now. So if there is a prayer in Scripture breathed out by God, we can trust that Jesus and the Spirit are both right now praying this prayer on our behalf. Here's what Ephesians 1, 17 through 20 says. The Spirit prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And this isn't just like an intellectual knowledge. This is a mutual love knowledge. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's you. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the prayer that the Holy Spirit chooses to pray over the church. The Holy Spirit chooses to pray not for safety, not for comfort, not for familiarity, not for a lack of persecution. The Holy Spirit chooses to pray that the eyes of our hearts would be opened and given light to see who Jesus really is. The Holy Spirit himself prays that we would be given more of him, that we would see and know who Jesus is, who he really is. Of all the things that he could ask the Father, he prays that our eyes would be opened to see and trust Jesus. Because seeing and trusting and knowing Jesus more fully is the single most important things for the eternal rest of our exhausted and wearied souls, isn't it? That's why we're here. Why else would you come here than to find rest for your soul? So who then is this man? Who is Jesus? We ask that question, that very last line of Mark 4, who then is this? Mark was written from the perspective of Peter. Um, Mark uh, transcribed what, what Peter dictated. And we know that in many stories, Peter gives a firsthand account of what happened. And we can confidently believe that this is one of those stories because if you look at the literary devices, it's very, there's lots of imagery, there's lots of hyperbole, there's lots of emotion coming into the story. You can almost hear the dictation of Peter. It's a vibrant story. You feel like you can be there. You feel like you could read this and then just imagine it happening. And this is important. Thinking of Peter writing this story and what it meant to him is important because what we can gather from the, the language, from this moment that they're in, what we can gather from um, the placement of this story, where it sits in the whole narrative, that's on purpose, but then also um, this confession that changes from Peter. See, we see here he's asking the question, who then is this? Well, then in chapter 8, Peter correctly and rightly answers, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Savior, the only Son of God. So we see this transformation in Peter asking this question, who is this guy? And then in chapter 8, he answers it correctly. Something happened here in Peter that was incredible and that was indelible. It means permanent. It transformed him. And what was that? What was that 
changing moment. Peter got the answer to the question, who then is this? His firsthand experience gives us this vivid detail as we enter into the story, and so we'll just follow a little bit of the storyline. See, Jesus had just finished teaching. He'd been telling parables, explaining those parables to the disciples so they should know who he is, right? And he says, let's get in the boats and let's take off to the other side. Well, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was this region called the Gerasenes. This is a Gentile land. It's uncommon and in some parts unlawful and even dangerous for a Jew to enter into this land. And Jesus says, we're going to go over there. And it wasn't just an escape from the crowds that were closing in on him. He was on purpose. We'll find out next week uh, that Jesus goes there for one particular man to experience freedom that sets a wildfire throughout that region. So Jesus heads out to the other side with his disciples in these boats on purpose. And while they're there, while they're on the water, a sudden and violent storm creeps in. It does more than creep in. That's an understatement. It crashes in. And this isn't abnormal. We shouldn't be surprised by this because the geography of the Sea of Galilee, it sits down in a basin and there's hills that kind of surround it. And those hills that surround it catch a lot of the moisture, catch a lot of the weather, that it actually um, is common for these sudden and violent storms to happen. Now, what's interesting is Peter says specifically on that day when evening had come, because these evening storms were proven to be even more violent, even more dangerous, and even more unpredictable. And so we now see the size of the trouble that the disciples find themselves in. And so what do they do? And like this firsthand account of Peter gives us the, the, this extreme detail, this, this vivid retelling of the story, we can almost hear the dictation. Peter saying, oh, there we were. We were in this boat. And then all of a sudden, the storms come and the waves are twice as big as our mast. And these waves are crashing into the boat. And we were all so scared that we would sink and die. And so we looked around, we, we didn't see Jesus, and we realized he was still asleep. And so we sent somebody to go get him and wake him up. Let's look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, that's important. They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, the disciples had been following Jesus for some time now, and all they had known of him was that he was teacher, that he was rabbi. Even though they saw him perform miracles, even though he was telling them all of these parables, explaining them. He had told them that he was God, but in their most dire moment, all they remember is that he's teacher. See, this is actually the first time in the book of Mark that it's recorded that a disciple refers to Jesus by a title, and that title is teacher. 
What does a student ask from a teacher? Help. All they knew of Jesus at the moment was that he was a teacher. And so all they knew to ask from him was help. My wife pointed this out to me as we were talking about this on Monday. And when she pointed this out, I felt this quick and deep conviction that I most often ask Jesus merely for help. Jesus, please help me to not be so afraid of what people think. Jesus, please help me to be kind and gracious and patient when my flesh just wants to be angry and harsh and mean. Please help me. Because I'm putting in the work. I need you to make up for the rest. See, many times my biggest hope in Jesus is that he would give me this supernatural boost, this spiritual uh, tailwind to the hard work I'm already putting in. It's easy and it's natural for us in our flesh, in our, in our um, just impulses to treat Jesus like he's a Red Bull, like he's heavy machinery. All we gotta do is just figure out the controls, gotta figure out the right prayer and he'll help me, he'll get the job done but I'm moving the controls, right? We may not acknowledge it. We certainly probably won't say it out loud, but we may not even recognize that we live with this theology of um, do your best and let God do the rest. That is anti-gospel. That is unbiblical, We don't merely need help from Jesus. We need Jesus to do for us what we cannot do on our own. And this is like everything, right? We learned last week, we've learned lots of times before, John 15, four through five says, abide in me and then you'll bear fruit because without me, you can't do anything. The spirit is willing, the flesh is no help at all. There is no spiritual Red Bull. Like Jesus doesn't say, keep the good work up, keep trying hard. When you fall down, get yourself back up. No, you're dead. The New Testament clearly says you are helpless. You can do nothing. You need Jesus for everything. We will not rightly see Jesus as Christ, as Savior, until we rightly see the danger that we are in within the storm of sin and death, and that he is the only hope we have of making it alive to the other side. He's the only hope. No matter how much water we're scooping out of the boats, Jesus says, stop it, peace, be still. And in verse 39, that's what he does. He quiets the storm. He, let me tell you why he does it, though. He doesn't do this to prove to his disciples what, they've, what they thought about him, not what they really knew. They, they heard him talk about being God, and he's like, okay, well, let me prove it to you. 
It wasn't this demonstration of his divinity so that he could convince some people that he really wanted to convince that he's God. No, this was a miraculous act of epiphany. You know the difference between a demonstration and an epiphany? Epiphany changes you. We didn't merely need to see this this different side of Jesus that we hadn't seen yet. We needed to see who Jesus really was. And so Mark puts this story in here to give the reader the sense of what the disciples understood in this moment, of this experience that they had of this Jesus, that they saw him as a completely new man. This was not a demonstration. This was an epiphany of his divinity. In this moment, Jesus cosmically announces that he is the Christ, the only Son of God, the Savior of the world. And when we think about this prayer in Ephesians 1, and to think that the Holy Spirit has prayed for this revelation, we also need to think about this is something that the church has rigorously defended that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So the Holy Spirit prays it. The church has historically defended it. That should lead us to then ask the question, why is it so important? Why is the divinity of Christ so important? Why must we see Jesus as fully God and fully man? I cannot, we don't have time in April and May to go through all the reasons why. So I'm gonna go through just a couple. I've got three reasons. First, if Jesus isn't God, then he could not have calmed the storm and they all likely would have died. Guess what? No Mark's gospel, no apostles, no cross, no salvation, no church. We wouldn't be here. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't have calmed that storm we wouldn't even know that it happened. Those guys were afraid to die because they knew fishermen had died in those storms. If Jesus isn't God, then the rest of Scripture isn't true. Throughout the Old Testament, there are prophecies that God would send his son, that God would himself come down from heaven to take our place. The earliest of those is Genesis 3.15. One of the most popular and most important is in Isaiah 7. This this prophecy connects the God of the Old Testament to Jesus. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, you guys know it? Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. So the Lord himself will become God with us. If Jesus isn't God, then that's not true. And lastly, if Jesus isn't God, then his death on the cross would have meant as much for the salvation of our souls, for our eternal future. His death would have made as much sense and meant as much to us as the death of the other guys on the crosses next to him. 
What, they, what does their crucifixion mean for our salvation? Nothing. And if Jesus isn't God, neither would his. For the cross of Jesus to be a saving cross, then God himself had to die on it as an innocent man taking the place of sinful man and cleansing us of our sin and then raising on the third day, giving us the, the hope of eternal life with him forever, right? This is why we're here this morning. This is why we'll be back next week. Easter's bigger than Christmas. Jesus was born, but if he wasn't God and if he didn't die and if he wasn't raised, then what's this all about? So Jesus questions the disciples. They call out to him, teacher, teacher, we need your help. And he says, you don't need my help. Chill out, waves. And then they're in awe. And it says that great fear came upon them. And Jesus questions them. He says, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? Jesus asking them this question is not a rebuke of their fear. This is not Jesus saying, hey, Christians, disciples, you're not allowed to be afraid. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is rebuking them for the fact that their fear was bigger than their faith in him. Their fear of the storm was greater than their faith in Jesus. Like I confessed to you at the very beginning of my message, my fear of you was greater than my worship of Jesus this morning. Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford um, flips this upside down. When, when we ask for help from Jesus, what we're doing is we're saying that there's something I can do, I just can't finish. But the reality of our existence is that we can't even start the road to salvation. We don't even know it exists. No more than a dead person knows that the roads outside the casket exist. And so Jesus wakes us up. It's not us waking him up. Jesus wakes us up, brings us alive from the dead. And by this power, he calls us to trust that he is bigger than the things we fear. He is bigger than the storms of our circumstances, than the storms of our troubles. He is even bigger than the storm of sin and death. And so we have something in Jesus to hope on, to believe in, that will get us through this life. Because as we near death, trusting in Jesus is remembering that he will catch us on the other side. You know how hard that is? We've had some church members in the last week, in the last 10 days, lose family members. You know how hard it is to sit with a loved one who's dying and seeing the fear on their face? You know how hard it is 
to sit with them as they suffer. But the relief that they experience when they're ushered into the presence of God and they finally just trust that Jesus is going to catch them on the other side. This is the hope and the faith that we have in Christ because he is bigger than sin and death. Scottish Puritan Samuel Rutherford, he says this, I hope to out-hope and out-believe my troubles. Like, I'm, I'm going to chase them down, and I'm going to say, Jesus is bigger than you. Like, like those kids on the playground, did y'all have this, where like you would have a friend come and say, hey, my dad's probably a lot stronger than your dad. <laughs> my mom's dinner is a lot better than your mom's dinner. Did y'all have those friends? Yeah. yeah. This is Samuel Rutherford saying, I'm going to chase down my troubles. I'm going to chase down sin and death. I'm going to chase down sickness. I'm going to chase down fear of people. And I'm going to say, no, 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 I will not fear you. Jesus is bigger than that. I have more to believe in Jesus than I have in whatever it is that I'm afraid of. I wrote something down that actually impressed me, so I know it's not really from me. Who then is this man? There is more to trust and hope in Jesus than there is wind in the storm. There is more power and love in Jesus than there is water in the waves. Who then is this man? He's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Savior of the world, the only Son of God. In him we have hope beyond our trouble, because he will outlast, he will outperform sin and death. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is at hand, and this is our king. Until now, through the first four chapters of Mark, we've heard repent, repent, repent. And now we hear believe, believe, believe. Believe that Jesus is the only king of heaven and earth. Believe that Jesus is the only king of salvation and restoration. Believe that Jesus is the only king of victory over sin and death. The question the disciples ask at this end, who then is this? This is given to us on purpose. Mark puts this at the very end of chapter four to remind us that we're supposed to ask that question of us. Commentator William Lane has this. This is a little bit of a a big uh, quote, so I'm gonna break it up. This chapter, ending with the disciples asking who then is this, is an invitation to ask the question of ourselves. Who then is this? Jesus asked the disciples in chapter eight, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, John the Baptist, some say Elijah even, um, some just a prophet and a teacher. And guess what? That's often who we say Jesus is when we forget that he is bigger than whatever we're afraid of. We don't just need his help. We don't just need his teaching. We need salvation. 
Who then is this? He is the personal living God who intervenes in the experience of men with a revelation of his power and will. He is a God who acts, not some pale abstraction. This is my favorite part. At all times and in every sphere, he exercises sovereign control. What happened last week in Nashville, what happened last week in our church family, the losses that we've experienced, we're asking the question, in this storm of sorrow, pain, loss, nearness of death, we feel the sting of death, who then is this Jesus? Revelation 21, band, you can, you can make your way up. Revelation 21, 1 and 4 paints an incredible picture. It encourages us that Jesus alone is our only hope that one day all the wicked and torrential storms would be quieted forever. Revelation 21, 1 says, Then I saw, this is um, the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel of John, he's writing um, this vision that God gave him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is our eternal hope. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Have you guys ever read that and wondered, why will there not be any sea? Any beach people in here? You'll still have beaches. What that's saying is the threat that the sea poses, this dark danger, this violent unpredictability of the waters will not exist anymore. Here's why. Because he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus put death to death. Who then is this Jesus? He is the Christ, our Savior, the only Son of God. And our Savior is not asleep. Our Savior is not left in a tomb. He is not distant. Jesus is with us. He is among us. He is active and he is working for our good. He prays for us, he leads us, and he maintains for us the real and living hope of enjoying life with him forever. I'm gonna repeat that because that was the only time while I was practicing my sermon that I cried. And I don't cry when I'm practicing, I only do it up here. <laughs> Our Savior is not asleep. He's not left in a tomb, he is not distant. Jesus is with us. He is among us. He is active and working for our good. He prays for us. He leads us. And he maintains for us. Listen, he maintains for us. We don't have to maintain it. The disciples said, teacher. They called out to him with the wrong title. And there was grace for them. 
They called him by the wrong title and he still quieted the storm. There is grace for them. There is grace for you. He maintains for us the real and living hope of enjoying life with him forever. So whether you're a Christian or not, what you need from Jesus is not help. You need hope for salvation. Without Jesus, you're helpless. You cannot fight the storm even a little bit. So we trust him to be who he says he is. We trust him to be the Christ, to be the Savior, to be the only Son of God. We trust him to be the one sent to suck the power out of the storm of sin and death. And when, like the disciples, we forget, when, like the disciples, we call to him for help, remember there is grace. There was grace for the 12. There's grace for you. So no matter how you call to him, he'll prove himself faithful. So press on. For those who believe, press on. Continue steadfastly seeking Jesus. For when we're transformed by one experience of his love, we trust and believe that there are infinitely more experiences of love and grace and mercy yet to be seen and known in him. And so we who share communion, we've got tables on the sides. We've got one table in the back. As we share communion, we confess that Jesus in giving up his body to be broken, in giving up his blood to be poured out, that Jesus has powerfully and supernaturally made eternal peace between God and man, that he's quieted the storm of sin and death forever. But listen, it's only for those who believe. It's only for those who look to Jesus and say, I believe, help my unbelief. It's only to those who will receive him as the Christ, the only son of God. And so upon this confession, would you please join me at the table?